Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And welcome to Rule of Three. That was shit, I'll tell you. <laughs> Keep that in. How many times have we done this? I can't it's do that. It's the hardest bit. Hello and welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Joel Morris. I'm Jason Hazley. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest this week is Lucy Porter. Hello, Lucy. Well, hello. hello. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Thanks for coming in. Honoured to be here in your, your hallowed studio. We've been wanting to get you on right from the off. A couple of years ago, around this time of year, went to go and see you do a, a warm-up show. Oh, yes. Somewhere local. And then mm. afterwards, it was really good. It was a great show. And then uh, afterwards, we were in the pub, and you were talking about this time of year where you're starting to get yes. a stand-up set together. In spring, a young stand-up's fancies turn <laughs> to Edinburgh, and <laughs> you do panic. Because, yeah, I mean, my life, since I've been in my early 20s, has been governed by Edinburgh. So I went from the academic year, had a few short years, of work where you know I, I observed the calendar year and now I observe the stand-up calendar which is uh, basically going from August to August and then lurching. Is it a bit like a farmer's calendar? There's a harvest period, there's yes. a sowing period. It's quite, it's quite <laughs> And nice. you do have fallow years as well sometimes. You have to... <laughs> My field is weary now. I must, <laughs> I must go and replenish and then come back. But yeah, it is an absolutely ridiculous actually given that, so I will be doing I think, I've lost count, but my 13th or 14th solo show this year at the end festival and by now you would suspect that if you've done anything that many times it becomes a well-oiled <laughs> machine and you sort of you know exactly what you're going to do but Still, I decide at the end of Edinburgh, in September every year, I do the Edinburgh Festival, and then in September I say, right, well, that was lovely, but I'm never doing that again, thanks very much. Um, I will just take myself off to the Betty Ford Clinic <laughs> to repair and <laughs> refresh, and then I shall leave this stand-up Eat world behind. Yes, absolutely, and go to bed at, you know, I might always think a monastery, a nunnery, uh, yeah. would be a good idea at that stage. And then January comes around, and then your agent says, do you want to go to Edinburgh? And you go, no, no, I really really don't actually I, I don't need to do that for my own artistic fulfilment and then you phone her back 10 minutes later and go do you know what actually I've got nothing else on really so I probably <laughs> I probably should is it because they catch you in January because we always find that, that you've been really really busy up to Christmas usually there's lots of Christmas specials to do yeah, yeah, books yes, and stuff like that yes. but our calendar's got that in it yeah. you're always heading towards a I've big thing I've got corporates in December you loads think. of promo mm. stuff things. So you yeah. usually have a really busy December and you're trying to earn money desperately for Christmas and things and then you hit January and you go we'll take a bit of time off in January and halfway 
through January, you go, oh my God, I'm never going to work again. Yes, And the yes. panic kicks in. And if anyone phones you with any suggestion of anything <laughs> to do, do you want to train as a lion tamer? Yes, I'd yes, do that. absolutely, I would <laughs> do. do. Well, get... in fact, I did. I auditioned for Dancing on Ice because I was so, <laughs> so desperate. I did, I did. Um, and it was one of the most fun days I have ever had, honestly. I went to a temporary ice rink in Slough. And a man <laughs> held me for about an hour on the ice and I couldn't do anything at all. Had you been on the ice before? Uh, when I used to go on the ice all the time when I was 13, right. 14 uh, at Streatham Ice Rink, but only to wobble around the side so that boys would come and help you. Yes. Right. <clears throat> then you could get off with each other so at the side and have some chips. So this was a big version of that, they actually gave you a boy at the they beginning who would help you? They actually just gave me a guy who, <laughs> who helped me around. Didn't buy me any chips. Uh, <laughs> there was no 80s music involved. But Didn't yeah. buy you any chips? No chips. That's was outrageous. At all. That's why I said I wouldn't do the show in the end, because uh, but it was, yeah, it was extraordinary. But yeah, and then I, I did the audition. I thought, well, there is no, I can't do this. And at my time of life, if I broke a limb, it would have a catastrophic impact. So anyway, but it was, uh, yes, it was a very nice day. But that is exactly the January madness yeah. where you will entertain any idea where you go, yeah, that's fine. That sounds great. And so, yeah, your agent catches you in a weak moment, lying, <laughs> reclining on my chaise long, thinking, but the public don't love me. Nobody loves me. <laughs> and then, yeah, you go, yeah, that, that little ego boost would be great. Why well, I thought it'd be great to, to have you on to talk about this as an idea about the stand-up set as a thing is that no one really I think the public don't really understand what that process is and the madness of it you described it to me in a pub and I thought I've worked in comedy for ages I didn't know this was how it worked that you would get phoned up and someone would say do you want to do it and you'd have to project into the future that far what are you going to be who are you going to be? What are you going to talk about before you've got a single idea? Yeah. And there probably would be a poster in place before you'd even thought what the subject of the thing yeah. was. So is that how we... it is? Do you, book, do you have to book the space and get it a poster done for the programme? And... Yeah. Oh, really? So basically January uh, for the Edinburgh Festival, you have to say that you will go and get a room and it's all very you know competitive and everyone wants the same places because you know you need a certain amount of people coming to see you so that you stand any chance of making any money because the whole endeavor is so expensive so you know but then you work you have to work out how you're going to get a room you can just about fill but that so you don't want to overreach yourself and yeah. have an empty barn but then you don't equally want to sell out every night and think oh I could have made some money the children yeah. could have eaten how do you gauge that though is it <clears> do you get a sense of it after you've done a few or does your agent give you some yeah I mean you know there's sort of, you go up and down really you, it's you know you very much get a sense of where you're where you are on the showbiz footsie by what <laughs> <Yeah>. size <laughs> of venue you're doing you know your stock has fluctuated am I echoing this year yes <laughs> yeah. yes oh dear right well We'll, we'll scale it down and everybody it is interesting because you, you know over the years having done it for so many years you watch people they go to the big room and then they but generally there is that sort of pinnacle there's like wow they're in the big room they're in the pleasance beyond or whatever mm. or they're in the big underbelly one and then that is the point where they either just take off and then they're not really ever going to do Edinburgh again apart yeah. from for one shits night. and giggles <laughs> yes um, and one night say that all the other comedians can go well I don't know why they've bloody taken away all our audience tonight yeah. doing <laughs> you know doing the conference centre or something or they sort of just come back and do small rooms and I think Edinburgh is a really interesting way of gauging where you are in the sort of comedy hierarchy or at least it used to be but now, I don't know, I think, I'm, I'm not sure really so much now. Maybe I'm about to contradict myself. But I think now people just do it for a few years and then they tend to get out. There's only some diehards. Like, you know, you get your Jason Burns and Andrew Maxwell and me and, uh, you know, all of those You're diehards. the ravens in the tower. Kind of. I well, like Edinburgh to think stop so. Edinburgh stop if you stop. Is, that, is, is there a worry? That you, that I think everyone would love that. If, I, <laughs> if it were, then people would be paying me money because I think there's a... It, <laughs> Comedians have a love-hate relationship with Edinburgh and some of the happiest comedians are comedians who have never done it or seen any need to. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're a really good club comic, uh, you can mop up in August and not have the sort of angst of doing a show. And I mean, the reason to do Edinburgh really is if you want to move your career in a different direction or if you, you know, you want to gain greater exposure to like the television industry or the press or whatever, or... If you're me, it's just because 
you sort of have got into the habit and love it and can't imagine doing anything else really and also I'm very lazy and the only way I will write any new material is if I do Edinburgh and I have that panic it's like just a deadline isn't it yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Suppose, I suppose otherwise you can do I mean this brings us to towards sort of what we're going to talk about today the thing you brought in because I think there's a feeling that the standard British comics life is uh, anchored to that season, that passing season. And it means that every year there is an encouragement to say, OK, develop a new 50 minutes of material. Yeah. You need 50 minutes of material every yeah. year. Whereas there's a strange thing when you see American stand-ups and they do their big Netflix special. And she's got an, an hour of new material. And you're thinking every British stand-up gets that every year. Yes. It seems that US stand-ups have a different clock ticking for when they need to have good 10 minutes, good 20 minutes, good half an hour, good one hour. And that career shape is very different. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen now, though. With I'm not sure now that British comics won't start to adopt that as well, where actually you just really, you're working towards your first Netflix special rather than oh, right. your first Edinburgh show. But I will talk about the traditional way of doing things because that's all I know. <laughs> this will be, this podcast will be like a beautiful historical document, like sort of watching thatching. <laughs> or someone, they'll be like, oh, this is how they used to make a barrel. Gosh, what a wonderful comedy cooper she was. Um, I'm talking about the old ways, the way you we used to do it back before, in the 90s. when it was all done by robots. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, robots in the big yeah, city. Definitely, because you, know, you used to go to America and see, and nobody had, like, uh, an hour show. And if they did, it was just their sort of best of. So most of the time, if you're a British comic, you go to Edinburgh for the first time and you've got this, it's all your best bits kind of crowbarred together. It's your first album. All, yeah, all, exactly. all the stuff you've done live. Of course it is. All your great, all your great early work and uh, full of spunk and vigour and excitement. <laughs> And I've changed my bank security question. And this is my little tip for you, is change your bank security question. My one used to be, they'd say to me, what's your mother's maiden name? I'd say Williams, and then we'd carry on. But I've changed it for something more fun now. And I'd advise you to do this, because my one now is, I phone up the bank, and they have to say to me, you're not going out dressed like that, are you? Right, that's David. <laughs> and then in reply, I have to say, you can't tell me what to do, you're not my real dad. Right, so... <laughs> You know, and then you difficult second album syndrome kicks in, and then you do a sort of a second show, which is kind of. But guys, this is me, right? This is the pain. <laughs> this is what goes on behind the happy mask you saw, and nobody really likes that second show, and they're like, "Why? We don't care." Um, and then, then you sort of find your groove, and you define what you are, and then say, so then if you do Edinburgh well, and you sort of get on well there, then you tour, and then you find your niche, and you find you know the the famous sort of Stuart Lee thing of you just find a couple of hundred people who are going to pay you £10 a year to come yeah, and yeah. see you yeah. and give you a living. And so, yeah, you then kind of find your people and then you give them what they want and then you have a kind of midlife crisis where you decide you're going to do something completely different. <laughs> and then that either works or it doesn't. Uh, yeah, and I mean, it is sort of quite predictable. You look at so many careers where you go, yeah, that is kind of the, the life of a jobbing British comic. Whereas hmm. I think in America, it's a, there is a bit more... Um, early pressure and then you know you'll do your your specials and then you know you can do the college circuit and stuff but there isn't really because there isn't a sort of as much of a stand-up circuit as there is over here you can't really be a jobbing comic in the same way you better make a movie you better <laughs> yeah, go you into better, entertainment yeah. or have a quiz show or something exactly yeah you've got to have more strings or something, yeah, yeah. Your, the Edinburgh process I suppose is, is that relentless rolling deadline which is a bit like that idea of it being an album always occurs to me it's, it's like being a 1960s pop yeah, act where yeah, every yeah. year you've got to get a record out mm. and you've got to go on tour and you've got to come up with new ideas at the same time while you're almost while you're on tour yeah. and it's like being Herman's Hermits or something they're going to want one whatever the happens yes. let's cash in quickly but it, it, that that treadmill happens in very few other industries that you need to generate a whole new set of new material every year and so quick yeah so quickly as well so you start off and well in fact last year was my 12th show but so I worked out that Abbey Road was the Beatles 11th studio album and I was like well that is quite good that it took them because <laughs> it, it doesn't sound like much and I think to any to the lay person go what well, you have to like write an hour of stuff a year I mean that is really nothing but it does because it is such a process of kind of whittling it down to being the best of to keep doing that every year I think it can take quite a while before you find yeah. exactly what you're good at some people do it within one or two shows but for some people slow learners like me it can take quite a long time to produce your best stuff and then you think well will it 
you know, when does the decline kick in? When does, you know... Because you can't break up as well as a stand-up. That's the problem is there's no artistic differences, yeah. Do you have any idea, have you ever worked out how much do you write for a one-hour show? How many hours of material get boiled down into that soup? It's, well, so I would say you do, let's say it's 20 previews, right? You do the maths, I'll give you the figures, I'll give you the rule figures. We'll do it afterwards and I'll probably, I'll read it in. Yeah, I'll get get a robot voice to read it in. You can be the Rachel Riley just coming in, sort of looking. (laughs) Or Bully when he walked across the Yes, exactly. Reading the real spelling out from the dictionary. Exactly, you'd be Bully. So 20, you do about 20 previews, say, and you do an hour at each of those. And so for the first 15, you probably get like five minutes or 10 wow. minutes out of those. Really? Oh, yeah. And then the last That's harsh. few. But so much stand-up doesn't work. I mean, it is extraordinary when you... Sorry, you're not just making it up on the flight. This is You've ruined it. I thought you made this all up. I know. You I know. Practiced, well, it was you funny. I know, isn't it? Well, I was listening to when Dara was talking about... Uh, you know, doing the early show and the late show at the comedy store and the same audience coming. They've enjoyed it so much in the early show that they come back for the late show. And it's brilliant. If someone comes to see like three shows when you're previewing, they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. She does make it up every yeah. night. And they're, and I think it's a really interesting process. Obviously I would because it's, you know, I'm a comedy wanker. But um, I think watching people preview is really interesting because that is when you do really see the kind of just brain fart emerging. <laughs> and, it's, and it will be different every time. But then people kind of see a finished show and then they come and see that like a month later and by that point the you know the change has slowed to glacial pace and that's it's sort of embarrassing if they come and see it and they're like oh we thought you would you know keep, you were different every time keep but doing yeah. that fizz yeah and is there a point at which you lock the show and say right that's it or does it still keep evolving as you go through the month in edinburgh it evolves the entire time yeah right. so i mean yeah and then you take it on tour and then it still it changes and it changes and it changes but i would say for me because i do always like to have a you know, a beginning and an end that Mm. I feel comfortable with. So once that's locked down, then I kind of feel... And that generally happens, ideally, um, (laughs) at the beginning of July. Ideally. Not um, at the end of August. Sometimes (laughs) it can creep well into August. But, yeah, no, my show... So last year in Edinburgh changed quite significantly in the first three days just because it was way too long and also I realised that the thing that I was trying to say wasn't the thing I thought I was trying to say and that was a sort of fundamental because also I think with Edinburgh you can get seduced and even at my grand old age and I generally think I don't give much of a damn about um what people think of me anymore and I you know I am quite sort of self-assured but there is a thing I think with Edinburgh where you think oh god what 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 is everyone talking about this year and what are the things I almost felt like well I mean I've got to talk about me too I've got to tick that off and I've got to talk about (laughs) Brexit and I've got to do and then of course you get out to Edinburgh and you realize well no you don't need to talk about anything you just talk about what you find at that moment particularly interesting. I think it is one of the loveliest things that happens as you get older. You go from being sexually harassed to being invisible overnight. And it's a brilliant freedom because you know who else is invisible? Ninjas. So, yes, it changed quite a lot last year because I I think I wanted my show to have more kind of global significance or, you know, be more kind of macrocosmic view of, of, you know, womanhood and society. And then I kind of got up there and I thought, oh, no, it is actually, it's just me telling a story about my friend who got knits and moaning <laughs> um, moaning about my mum's friends and <laughs> celebrating the life of George Michael. And it was like, actually, that's, a, that's fine. That's all it needed to be, was it was, uh, you know, that was, it, was a, it was a little show. It was a little tiny show. I'm always really interested by that because I think that one of the things that people, it takes years to learn, is that the process of making stuff is the process of discarding it. Yeah. And the first thing you do is whenever you're given a blank piece of paper, and I suffer from it terribly, I'm sure everybody else does, I want to put everything on the piece of paper. Yeah. Especially if you've sort of been really busy and you go, oh, this is my chance to do my show for this year. This is my chance <laughs> yes. to write. My-. Someone says, oh, have you got an idea for a sitcom? Or you go, I'll put all the ideas in there. And the process of working out that actually that this one can only be about two of them. Yes, takes yes, ages yes. to learn. And your audience thank you for it only being about two things. Yeah. And you can see, I always say, well, you can see with big blockbuster movies especially where they've been through lots of hands that the ones that don't work are the ones that are about 20 things and the ones that do work are the ones that are about one thing or two things and the process of getting it uh, I think it was Jesse Armstrong told me once he said he worked on a a screenplay that took all the best minds in in, in British writing were out in LA writing the screenplay and at the end of it he said the plot looked like it had been written on the back of a fag packet (laughs) and it took uh, Sam and Jesse and Robert Popper and about six people two weeks to get a story that was about someone finding their mum. 
Yeah. Because they'd all brought a different idea and they'd had to trial those ideas and then reject them to get to a point where it was the simplest story possible. And people don't realise that very often all the work that goes into something is spent getting rid of stuff, yeah. not adding stuff in. Particularly, I think with stand-up, it's a lot of it is getting rid of ego, and there's I stand-ups don't have ego. Well, you know, I mean, it is. Uh, I think some of them do. I think the there is a sort of yeah, a kind of tendency to think messianically about your stand-up show and kind of go right. What am I going to teach the world with this right. show? And is it because you're given that microphone and there's no one else up there? Because it's not a collaborative process. Mm. There's a tendency for it to be all about you. It's a unique... Absolutely. And it is. I don't know if you get this, but sometimes if I have had a couple of alcoholic drinks, then <laughs> I feel emotional and uh, sensitive and heightened and in tune with the world. And, you know, and that I really do have something quite profound to contribute. And... Most people kind of sober up and then realise that that was a beautiful thing that alcohol will give you, that sense of, you know, clarity connection and, and clarity. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, you have that when you're writing a stand-up show and it takes a while to realise that you will not always get that. And when you see a show that is reaching for that and failing, and I have done these shows myself where you do a show and you think, right, this is going to be the show where I, you know, my Nanette, you yeah. know, and they do happen and that's the awful tantalising thing is that sometimes there is a stand-up show that does genuinely achieve that level of insight and, and influence that a novel or a play or some other sort of more traditionally highly regarded art form can achieve. But a lot of the time you have to have the jokes to serve that and you have to have the truth to serve that. And a lot of the time you don't, and not every Edinburgh show is going to be a profound, you know, heartbreaking work of staggering genius. And so, you know, realising that is kind of, I think, a big part of it as well, is knocking out all the preachy bits. Audiences, I kind of think sometimes they love a little bit of schmaltz, but <laughs> if you're giving them that cynically, then you are a bad person. <laughs> Can that, they can tell. No. They can't tell. Is that what's even worse? It, I, what I hate most is when you see a stand-up who is getting an emotional reaction from a cynical place and I do want to stand up and shout, you fools! <laughs> the man's a beast! Can you not tell? He's a monster! And yet he's doing his little puppy eyes and everyone's like, oh, he's just so vulnerable and, and it's like he's doing it to get laid it's the oldest trick in the book and um, is, that, is that the awful truth of stand-up is it another one yeah. of those things that people like playing the guitar or yeah. learning magic tricks or doing impressions that is basically just to get laid there is definitely a strand of that in all of it I mean definitely for me because you, cause the thing is it was so tragic because I started has it got you laid then and as I went well I didn't get laid because it was actually it did the opposite because it was that thing of watching <laughs> watching guys and you'd be at the gig and you'd be like oh my God, you know, this is amazing. All the ladies love this. I'm thinking, well, I mean, then logically, there aren't many women do it. If there were, then I mean, I'd get 10 times as many <laughs> men coming up and being a bit... Um... It's like joining a boys' school in the sixth form. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One of the 10 girls. <laughs> exactly. I don't need to be hot. I don't even need to be clever. I just need, need to be, be female. Yeah. <laughs> no, and then, of course, I realised it's not... You don't get fawning adoration. You get men being mean to you in order to try and impress you because they think that that's what being funny is. Um, and then you just get loads of unwanted sexual attention. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, God, yeah, this was everything I dreamed it wouldn't be. Um, I would say there have been stand-ups over the years who I have met who I've thought, wow, a large part of your motivation for this is chicks yeah. or mm. fellas. Um, but I think it would be a very hard career to sustain if there Barry was Cryer's a new He's just in it for the chicks. <laughs> and he's managed to keep that going for a long time. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Still well, I fell, it, for it. No, I fell for it. I fell for it. Me it's and old sex machine. Um, but Get yeah. down. I feel like Barry Cryer. <laughs> <laughs> write your stand-up down? Uh, I do now. I right. did not in the past, but now my memory has gone and I find it hard, I genuinely find it harder to remember it. So I think oh, actually I will write a bit more than just bullet points. So I never had, so the first few Edinburgh shows I ever did, I've got the, the notepads 
uh, that I had that I took to Edinburgh with me and I will never be able to remember half of that material because it's just uh, water uh, twats yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're always those kind of really unhelpful bullet points of uh, you know the emotional thrust of it was what you wrote down so it was yeah. you know a lot of the time I was like god I must have been just really depressed because the whole Edinburgh show was you know heartbreak loss <laughs> terror <laughs> <laughs> your key words were quite bleak yeah they were but the shows were always very bouncy you see I thought I sort of assumed that all stand-ups had a written-down version of, and because I'd seen um, uh, some of Stuart Lee's stuff written down, so I know he wrote it. I know he writes his stuff down. But Dara said that show that he was doing recently, the one-hour thing, there's nothing written down for no, it. He's just got it all in his head. Dara's amazing as well. I, mean, I shared a, a flat a, once with Dara in Edinburgh, <laughs> and so his advice to me when we were both sort of starting out was, he said, "Oh, um, what you should do is just get like a bottle of red wine." and sit there with a notebook and just think, don't even, and just jot down the odd word, right? And so I did that and then woke up the next day with no clue what I'd been on about, <laughs> but except that I knew that I had the most important and profound show that Edinburgh would ever have seen. And it was very... Ah, wine. Ah, uh, <laughs> the wine. But, but there is something about, I still, I mean, I don't have like a a proper script script, but I do write a bit more down than I used to. Yeah. But I certainly wouldn't ever, like if I go and do a show, like now I'm on tour at the moment and I don't ever look at my notes or anything, I just go out and do it. And there are times where I will genuinely forget what I was going to say, which used to be a source of great terror, but now is uh, an excuse for improvisation. And when yeah. you're sort of in the middle of a tour, you go, oh, God, it'll be nice just to talk about, you know, I'm in Reading, there's a new Greg's opening, I'll just talk about that for 10 minutes and yeah. then see if I can find my way back into the show somehow. You're good enough at the scales of it to be able to busk for a bit. The and- innate timing is so weird that you get that exactly, you know what, what the time feels like so you know you start off and you know what five minute feels like because you can only ever do five minutes and if you go over then you get horribly told off and then 10 similarly and then 20 and then once you get to doing your own shows it becomes like you know the idea of talking on stage for an hour in Edinburgh when you first do it is absolutely mind-blowingly terrifying and then you do it a few times and it is um then you just go yeah so it's an hour so I'll just start talking and then you know, I will edit the show as I go so that I will know that I will finish it an hour. And it is quite, it's, it, there are very few skills that I could say that I've learned through doing this job. <laughs> Most of them involve, you know, travelling and motorway service etiquette and, uh, <laughs> you know, hotel room behaviour. But um, definitely I could tell you to the minute when someone's doing a set I don't need to look at my watch I'm like right they're at 40 minutes now is that the craft of stand-up is knowing when you're going on to well I mean that is the again knowing what to discard and knowing when to get off stage are the two sort of massive (laughs) things because also the part of it is about you getting a sense of time but it's also you just get to know crowds and you do get to know again I'm, I'm going to keep requoting Dara's podcast go and listen to Dara's <laughs> episode if you haven't because but um like he was saying that a crowd becomes rather than a collection of individuals it becomes an entity mm. and 20 minutes and 40 minutes are for some reason very natural points of restlessness or change within a group of people so 40 minutes this is why everybody says that um edinburgh shows are designed to be 50 or 60 minutes 60 minute slot ideally you do a 50 minute show within that so you've got five minutes to get people in and out um but everyone says oh it's just too long because 40 minutes if you finish a show at 40 minutes everyone's like oh that was great. Yeah. Thanks. I'm we've full. had we are sated and replete, <laughs> and uh, we've yeah not even room for a tiny little putty four. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you go on, yeah, you you leave a bloated and flatulent crowd at the end of an hour. <laughs> Is that why you need at the end? Oh, literally, they do stink as well. <laughs> That's the other thing you learn about crowds is they really smell. Also, is that why increasingly for the classic Edinburgh Hour, the standard show that you see? There's a 10-minute bit where you start doing callbacks or you start to sum up so people in the audience know that this is coming yes. to a close. <laughs> yes. So, And that's what people say, that's an amazing arc. They told a story. and yet, No, that was just to stop you throwing stuff at 40 minutes. Oh, God. And, I mean, if people knew the cynicism, because I feel so bad and such a charlatan because people always come up and they say... It was just amazing the way you sort of wove it all through and that, you know, everything kind of paid off at the end. And it's such a... a cheap trick 
And it is just going back and just popping in the odd little reference here and there. And, you know, well, I mean, it's, it's just craft. It is just craft. It's like writing. Of course it is. I mean, it's every kind of writing, here, yeah. isn't it? It's just giving the illusion that you knew where you were going when you started. You heard the lovely Agatha Christie story. John le Carre ran into Agatha Christie once. Uh, do. Said, I love your books. I can never work out who done it. How on earth do you? I don't think I could write a book like that. How do you do it? And she went, I just write the book. And I stop near the end and work out who it couldn't possibly be, make it them, and then go back to the beginning and do and just seed all the clues. That's and brilliant. she just said, I have a lovely time setting up these lovely characters and enjoy them. And at the end, decide who who no one will think it was. Yes. And you go, oh, but you don't see it coming because she's gone back and fixed it. Yes, exactly. And it's just exactly. joyous. It's craft. And you do have to make the writing fun for yourself as well. I was listening yeah. to yeah. Um, Desert Island Discs. That's a very good point. Oh, because it's not fun, is it? If it was I on mean, rails, if it was mechanical from the very beginning, you wouldn't enjoy, and no one would mm. enjoy seeing these characters move around. They wouldn't feel like real people. They'd yeah. feel like uh, pawns in a game of chess and ditto with a stand-up set or a plot for a sitcom. It would feel mechanical if it was mechanical all the way through. Sometimes you need to go back and put the mechanics in, but to have enjoyed just these people talking or yeah. you just talking about things that interest you. Well, and when you're writing sitcom, I think, you get, you know, you start writing a character and then you get to love them and then you get to know them and then you kind of, you, you know, you find their truth and then you sort of go back and you fix what you wrote in the beginning and, you you know, you go back and reevaluate them yeah. in the light of getting to know them better. And it is weird when you're doing that to yourself and <laughs> going, well, what would Lucy have done in that situation? Because that doesn't feel right. It's difficult to sort of think, well, I don't want people to think I'm nicer than I am. Yeah. But if they do, <laughs> then uh, then they're not going to find stuff funny that I actually think or say. And you do sort of end up with a very distorted kind of, which I think we will um, be interesting character. to talk about uh, the, the thing that I brought in in the well, light yeah. of that. Well, do, do say what you brought in, because I think this is a very good example of a of, uh, an American extended set, yes. which is an interesting beast, and also of someone building a character yeah. that I... I'd not seen this show before, neither had you. No. And watching this person build their character, I found completely fascinating. Yeah. So what have you brought in? So I have brought in Ellen DeGeneres' uh, HBO special One Night Stand from 1990. <laughs> Don't you hate when somebody says they're going to call you, like, like say they say they call you about 7 o'clock, all right? So at 7 o'clock and they haven't called, you say, okay, I'll fix a drink. So you have a drink. Then you have another. Then you have another. Then you have another, then you have another, then you have... Now you're drunk. Now it's five after seven, they still haven't called. When did you see this? So I saw this, I would say, a couple of years later, so probably about 1992, and I was living in Manchester. I was uh, having been an absolute stand-up fan since my early teens and complete obsessive about stand-up. I sort of had seen a lot of American stand-up... But this kind of really affected me. And I was at the point where I was just thinking, actually, do you know what? I think I would really like to do stand-up. I think this might be something. Rather than hanging around, because I'd been on the periphery and I'd been a, a reviewer of stand-up comedy and then I'd been, um, I'd worked on a TV show with stand-ups in it and I was just sort of loitering around the fringes. And I thought, actually, I'd quite like to do this. And it was, I think for every stand-up, there is someone you see and you go, whoa, that's... That I'd love just to do that, exactly that. If That's I could just one. do that, mm. if I could be a tribute act, which we didn't template. even have in those days. Yeah, that would be me. And, Victoria um, Wood said it was seeing Joyce Grenfell and she went, whatever I do with my life, I'll do that. Yeah. So yeah. that's possible. Uh, we're up there standing on our own. I could do that. Yeah, and I think with, I mean, I'd seen Victoria Wood and thought, my God, I'd love to do something like that. I'd seen Joe Brand and I'd thought, my God, that's amazing. But I don't think I'd ever seen anyone where I'd thought, but exactly, exactly, wow. literally, that is exactly what I would like to do. These people that fish, they say, oh, I catch him, I throw him back in. I catch him, but I throw him back in. What kind of reasoning is this? It's kind of like driving a car, hitting a pedestrian. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I just wouldn't even hit you. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Go on. Oh, see the size of him? Give me a beer. Again, like Dara was saying, he had to have the Eddie Izzard beaten out of him. <laughs> I basically was a sort of British Ellen DeGeneres tribute act for the first few <laughs> years Did you of dye my your career. Hair? <laughs> I had it cut into a similarly awful uh, haircut. Yeah, no, I did. I felt I sort of modelled myself on her in many ways because, um, yeah, it just it really struck me. It just was something that absolutely captivated me and I just loved everything about what she did. Uh, and I watched it sort of endless times. In fact, there is a very fine radio producer called Carl Cooper who uh, was 
a contemporary of mine in Manchester and we used to just sit and watch comedy videos at his flat solidly and this one was absolutely one of the, the regulars that we would watch. That one, a couple of Seinfelds, Paula Poundstone, who I also absolutely loved because Paula Poundstone actually, um, for her crowd work and also, I mean, the time that I was doing comedy in Manchester, so I did start doing comedy and it was like uh, Steve Coogan and Henry Normal and Carolina Hearn and John Thompson all did a new material night at a club called Band on the Wall, really excellent world music club. And uh, I used to go along to that every week and be fascinated by the process because you would see routines evolve. And I mean, Carolina Hearn, actually, I would say, was the English Ellen DeGeneres in yeah. that she was mm. ploughing a very similar furrow with her stand-up, which I think was brilliant. Her stand-up was amazing. And it was a similar kind of, a bit of an ingenue, slightly, you know, kooky, without the awful connotations of that word. But, you know, it was just a bit of a misfit, but very sweet. You ever do this? This is fun. You ever get flies drunk? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think it's an interesting thing with Ellen, the persona she's doing. This opens with... Um, as they all do these HBO specials with a little tiny filmed intro. Yeah. That sometimes they do work and sometimes they don't work. And I thought this one was lovely in that it gives you a character clue for who you're about to see. Yes. And the joke in the, the intro is that she's she's in this nice house, but she's broken into the house. And she's yeah. phoning someone. She's on the phone to someone yeah. saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, just, um, yeah, just if you can catch it, that'd be great. Right. That's right. Yeah. Blonde hair. Degenerous. Just sat right next to you and Matt. It'll come back to you. Just watch the show. I think you'll. Yeah. Okay. All right, sorry I woke you. All right, bye. Yeah, yeah exactly. but it's, and it's, it's this really nice thing that she's a, a clearly a nice white blonde perky pretty girl pleasant, next door Louisiana girl like all the good manners and things. Yeah. But everything she's saying says that she's dark and weird, yeah. and I wasn't expecting that as a character mm. note to say, which she's borrowed from because she's a huge admirer of Woody Allen and Steve Martin. Yeah, and she's definitely borrowed that from boys. Yes, that thing of going, okay, I'm a nice guy. But behind this, I do weird stuff and I will pretend to you that it's normal that I do weird stuff. Like, oh, I just broke into this guy's house. Or yeah. there's a wonderful thing where she makes a joke about drinking, that she's a heavy drinker. Oh. And she pushes it harder and harder and harder. She says, it's the booze and the crack. I don't do crack. And then she goes into a Phoebe Waller-Bridge set of riffs where she's going to the audience, I don't do that, I do. I don't do that, I do. I don't. And she does it about six times. Yes. And all of it is saying, you think I'm nice, but the character I'm playing has got this awfulness at its heart yeah which I is mean, really odd but it's play. not i don't know that i mean it's not that dark is oh, it it's playfully dark it's, isn't it? it's to get a laugh and it, it but what, and you know she doesn't really i wonder what i found <laughs> striking about watching it again was how much she does hammer home you know it is an absolute exercise in i'm just setting up this is like my first 
nobody knows who I am. And so almost that first, the pre-titles film, that's almost the same as the first routine she it does, is. which is about breaking into someone's house. And you go, well, behind someone. You know, you would think, surely you've just done that. Yeah. But it kind of works because it, because she is so nice and she is so Doris Day Yeah. that you go, oh, yeah, okay, so really, yeah, you're telling us that not only do you break into people's homes and follow men <laughs> from home from supermarkets, but, but that is quite, yeah, that first routine that she does about following the guy home from the supermarket, I mean, it's quite a long, yeah. it's a long shaggy dog story without a sort of an amazing payoff. It just kind of... Yeah. Well, she and she follows it, it up with the one about how her aunt died of gum disease, which yeah. is another ludicrous shaggy dog story, <laughs> yes. isn't it? But they're, they're statements of confidence, I think. And yes. again, all you're getting at the start of it is, if someone's got this Doris Day front of shop, the joke is there's some darkness behind the, the sugar. Yeah. And she does that. There's confidence to deliver that. Come with me and trust me. And at the end of the, the gum disease riff, which is just learned the rhythms of it when it starts and stops and let's go. I don't know. I try to keep in shape. I, I'm flossing every day. Which is important. That gum disease is scary, isn't it? My aunt died from gum disease. She did. She accidentally got two pieces of Wrigley Spearmint stuck on her eyelids. Couldn't open them up. She wandered onto some train tracks. Train didn't hit her, but she stepped on a rusty nail, infected her foot. Doctors had to cut it off. She got real depressed about that and moved to Guam, opened up a little gift boutique there selling knickknacks, went bankrupt in about six months. Anyway, she fell in love with this man she met while hitchhiking. And the audience is just enjoying the fact that she can do this. They were swimming one Saturday, Trudy and Yolanda, that was them. Real choppy, real windy, storm was brewing. At the end of it, the roar of applause yeah. that she's told them a story that made no sense with no proper ending and no proper joke. But what a ride. And Trudy called out, better go, storms are brewing. And Yolanda said, yeah. So they got out and started walking. Pack of wild wolves attacked Aunt Yolanda and killed her. So that gum disease is nothing to mess around with. You know. True story. It's ecstatic to watch the audience lift and go, that's the point at which I think you know she's got them. Yeah. And it's, oh, it's so good to watch. Yeah, and it's about they are relaxed enough for her then to just go into some sort of fairly trad stuff, I guess, because they yeah. sort of so know that, 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 you know, that's what she is. It's interesting, you sort of, the Steve Martin thing. Because I, you know, I love both Steve Martin and Ellen, but it isn't a very, I don't think it's a massively obvious kind of influence because he is so much more sort of surreal. But I suppose there's a sort of little element of that in what she does. It seems to have given her the confidence to put that surreal stuff in behind mm. the observation. And, you know, every time she does an observational routine, it reminded me very much of Eddie Azar. Yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of animals. Yeah, I mean, you know, animals, she loves yeah. the anthropomorphism. And Lizards with toupees. Yeah, I enjoyed that. that's a very sweet one. No, I, I enjoyed the fact that she can just drop this whimsy in now and then as a little detail and, and it's and you sort of go yeah I don't require anything more from that you know but it isn't all whimsy like, I, like Eddie's stuff is largely just completely whimsical isn't it mm-hmm. hers she's got she's playing with different registers here I think there's a bit of whimsy there's the the thing about the lift button which struck me as a really straightforward piece of stand-up you know a straight off the shelf bit of stand-up now the elevator will come then someone else walks up and they push the button you're like you idiot I pushed it he pushed it <laughs> Can you believe people? <laughs> and then even the the bits where she just stumbles on something, like stand-ups do when they go, what about that? And like the, the thing where she says, what, what is a perfect stranger? Yeah. <laughs> you go, what a lovely observation. Yes. That's great. Well, you can gets, go anywhere with well, that, she those, those observational riffs, and they are, some of them, yeah, you're right, they're, they're pushing the lift button again in case someone hasn't pushed it properly. That's a pretty standard bit of stand-up. Mm-hmm. She does it completely wonderfully. The act-out, as Dara taught yeah, us, yeah, is yeah, terrific yeah. in that. Yeah. But then when she goes to the bit about if something's horrible and you taste it, something's yeah. horrible, and you pass on the cup to make them taste yeah. it, I've not thought that. No. It's, now I will never not think that again. It is that is a world class yeah. observational. That riff. is one of those routines, isn't it, where you just think it's timeless classic. You ever notice whenever you're with someone, they taste something that tastes bad. They always want you to taste it immediately. And <laughs> it's disgusting. Taste it. Taste how bad it is, though. Taste it. It's gross. And we're stupid. All right. You're right, I'm going to vomit. Taste this. We're both throwing up. We think you will too. And 
the acting out because I sort of think actually yeah you can trace with her sort of mild darkness you've got then a line I think forward to Maria Bamford who I think inhabits mm. the same kind of area but is more dark I can see a line from her to even Sarah Silverman yeah. as in saying okay I'll be all perky and I'll just say unreasonable things in that perky voice and you'll it'll take you half a beat to get that I actually said that yeah and she's play. I didn't expect to see that because I'd seen her sitcom I loved her sitcom it was set in a bookshop when I worked in a bookshop yeah it's the best sitcom. Oh, it was love, but it and it was interesting because it was all about the peripheral characters as well, like Audrey. And yeah, she was very much sort of given a vanilla role in the middle. Of yeah, that yeah, bit. yeah. She was the every is, woman. Yeah, this is her being quite extraordinary, I think. And 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 actually, I'll tell you what is a good Steve Martin gag that she does with her crowd work. There's the bit where she goes, "Who likes cats more than dogs?" Yeah. yeah. How many people like cats better than dogs? By a round of applause. <laughs> Me too. How many people like dogs better than cats? Me too. There were a lot more of them. And you get that lovely thing of she's letting you know this is a piece of artifice. Yeah. And letting you know that she's vulnerable to the audience, which Steve Martin will play with that and go and just change what he's saying because the audience react a certain way. Yeah. She keeps revealing how she's doing it, which I think is, I wasn't expecting. The opening thing was she goes last Tuesday. Well, it wasn't last Tuesday, it was months ago. For instance, like, I was in the grocery store uh, last Tuesday. <laughs> it was a couple of weeks ago, but a few months ago. About a year ago, but it happened, okay? in the grocery store in this it happened in the past <laughs> is her derailing her stand-up almost at the beginning to yes. say hey i'm making this up it's craft it isn't real and especially i think as a woman there's often an expectation that everything you're saying will be true it's your real life well there's nothing really desperately confessional at all in this is no. there which i you know obviously in hindsight because i always thought oh it's kind of interesting that she never talks about boyfriends or she never sort yeah. of does that mm. she never goes down that route and i really liked that because at the time there was definitely i felt there was a pressure when i started out doing stand up there was this sense of oh you know you mustn't just talk about periods and men because that was the cliche which of course we now look back and go well it it wasn't ever true but (laughs) we we all believed that was what all women talked about and I fell for it myself you know that I was like oh yeah no god I must be you know kind of slightly more androgynous character on stage (laughs) and that is you know kind of what she is just quite intriguing as well like the the darkness hints at the fact that she's a crack addict, but you don't really know anything more than that she's a bit crazy and a little bit weird and a little bit dark, but there's definitely no sense of this is who I am, there's no mask slipping. Yeah, it's an absolutely waterproof character. Well, she comes out on stage and she does this thing we observed in the ideas of routine as well. The first thing she does is take all the energy out of the room. Mm-hmm. There's a whoop of, of welcome recognition that she's come on stage. And then she goes back on her heels and goes, um, yeah. and slows the whole room down. You go, oh, you can... You've got the gears. Although I find it interesting watching this as a alongside her most recent Netflix special yeah. where she comes out and is much more high status because in the world she you know, no one could be higher status. Yeah. She's top twenty entertainers in America yeah, early wise. You know, she's big. Extraordinary. And she comes out on that and it's a that extraordinary American thing where they will not stop clapping and cheering they just and it goes forever (laughs) and she's there and she's kind of taking it very graciously and stuff but I think in this one in the 1991 I can see a little bit of nervousness a little bit of dry mouth at the beginning which I would never obviously have noticed before but definitely when she's in her first routine I'm feeling the the nerves that sense of you know this is fuck this is my big special they're filming this this could go wrong if this goes wrong then it's a calamity Thank you. Thanks very much. This is exciting, isn't it? This is really great. I'm happy. Uh, You seem like a great crowd. Of course, you never know. (laughs) Never can tell. I mean, you never really lose that as a stand-up, but you definitely don't get as much of a sense of it in the the more recent one because losing it from the start that she gets in 2018, whenever she recorded it, would be really quite a feat whereas losing it in 1990 would probably have been not 
beyond the bounds of possibility. Mm. First one feels like she's she's pulling the reins in to say, slow down, slow down, slow down. Maybe she's even slowing herself down yeah. before she starts. And then later on, when she's more confident, she's slowing the audience down. And they're two different slows. Yeah. I mean, I think you'd never really watch a stand-up and and factor in how nervous they must have been or did they slightly fuck that bit up or was there some... And it is kind of when you watch it as a stand-up and I do think, yes, yeah, she's she's definitely not uh, a comedian at the top of her... Well, she's at the top of her game as a newbie, but she's yeah. not mm. got that sense of not giving a shit that, that only comes with time and fame and, uh, and age, I think. <laughs> This is her half hour. This is the American equivalent of what an Edinburgh yeah. show is. This is the longest she would have done. Am I right in thinking that an American stand-up will have a a, 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 a club set and about ten minutes, something to do for Letterman? A yeah. Five well, there's much more pressure on their short sets because TV is everything. So yeah, mm. they're. I mean, I suppose now you know, live at the Apollo or something would be the equivalent of. But in her new special, she talks about how she was on the Johnny Carson show, and. It's it's sort of quite autobiographical, the new one, and she talks about the fact that her girlfriend had died and she was in a living in this awful basement flat infested with cockroaches and she was just writing something and she suddenly went, I am going to be the first woman that Johnny Carson asks to sit down after doing their stand-up bit because he'd never, you know, that's the great seal of approval. I mean, obviously that's probably a slightly fanciful, romanticised thing, but going from 10 minutes to an hour normally in Britain you've got your hour and you've done Edinburgh probably or you've done a show and then you get on telly whereas I think in America it can go the other way where you just you know you are launched with yeah. your 10 minutes and then you have to kind of scrabble and get the hour together well these one night stand shows that's a, a sort of an American TV it's about 28 minutes isn't it nearly half an hour it's not yeah. very very long <clears throat> no. but there is a, a sense in it that it, these are her 10 favorite routines and the links between them. I love American <laughs> they links. Don't they go, hey, try and keep in shape. I think you can probably buy them from a shop. The yeah. thing that will get you from one routine to another. Yes. To and you go, she goes, I like to keep in shape. I floss, which is almost a joke on how those yes. links don't quite yes, work. Yes. I, yeah, I think that probably is conscious. I think yeah. that probably is a, yeah, a, a thing. Oh, yeah, and the absolute slickness of the American comics that she. She was a bit more ragged yeah. than the other, you know, because I was watching Seinfeld at the time. He was just absolutely seamless. And I did quite like the fact that she was clearly sometimes fumbling around for a way from A to B. And also the end of this show is extraordinary. Because it's amazing. It just ends, just, and not on my favourite routine by any no. chalk, you know, it's just, it just, she just goes. She's like, right, that's it, thanks. How does this happen? What are these women doing in there? All righty. <laughs> I wonder whether that ending would be more of an impactful ending in America, a slightly more Puritan country, because it does end up on quite a big description of women's behaviour in toilets. Yeah. Yes. Which maybe, and a big act out. Maybe yeah. in 1990, that was quite a big thing to say, this is how I behave in a toilet yeah. cubicle. And you're right, you are right, exactly, yes, that we hadn't really seen that in, although actually Donna McPhail I think had a routine at the same time that I did a different very different routine but which I found hilarious because it was you know this is seeing something about women that we don't normally get to see so yeah maybe to a mixed crowd maybe the image of a woman smearing her piss all over a toilet seat yeah. was probably a big ending <laughs> <laughs> There's your big finish. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest as well, you think, I know who Ellen is meant to be. She's their Stephen Fry. She's a national treasure. She does the award ceremonies. It was quite fun seeing her do a really big, very funny levatorial routine, which is just, it's only there because it's observational. And she, and she does it really well. But yeah. may, maybe it's a bigger finish than we think now. Well, and also, but there is no, I don't know, yeah, you just think even in a club set, I think you would have some kind of payoff or a tiny callback <laughs> or a little, but there's nothing, there's no, no. callbacks at all. So she goes from, yeah. the start is, this is my character, I'm a little bit dark and weird. And then we sort of move into observational stand-up and then we never really go back to dark and weird, do we? No, it ends no. up in pure observation, yeah. Structurally, she's not 
I mean, apart from the fact that she's smearing piss all over a toilet seat, which yeah. I suppose is quite dark. Weird observation, it? if nothing yeah. else. It's also got her audition for Dory in it. Which yes. I, oh, she's pretending to be a goldfish. Yes. And then she does manic fish. Yes. And you think, oh my God, someone would have seen this yes. and said, you will be a beloved children's character. <laughs> Maybe they're not quite thinking that much. Maybe they have a brain the size of a pinhead. They're thrilled to death to be in there. They're talking to each other. Going through the castle again? Want to come? And I, maybe that's why the, the, the slight darkness is a surprise still, because now I associate her with doing voiceover for Pixar. Yeah. The sort of slightly stalkery, serial killery toilet routines are, are quite a thrill. <laughs> yeah. She must have got the gig from someone seeing this and going, well, that's who we get in for Dory, isn't it? Surely. She yeah. does good fish work. Surely. She's a forgetful fish. I mean, yeah, yeah it's exactly the, the part she was born to play. <laughs> It's a lovely sort of observational main course. Yes. With some nice, you know, amuse bouche and a starter and a and a but you know, I feel I feel the pudding is somewhat lacking. If I'm you know, I feel like I'm being critical of this, which I've brought in <laughs> as an amazing it's example. Because you've only seen it four hundred and nine times. Uh, yeah, a... well I suppose it, having watched it again after having watched it obsessively for so many years and not having watched it in the intervening period, that yeah, I kind of I, I was just taken by surprise because I was like, Oh, I don't remember it being so abrupt as a finish. And probably because you've been spent 14 years building stuff that's got those callbacks. And yeah. That last 10 minutes, the bit where the audience might lose interest, is so crucial to a stand-up. Is it odd just watching one where someone hasn't bothered and thinking, oh, God, that was the influence. <laughs> I could have just done that. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking, you jammy cow. You haven't to do all that. <laughs> I mean, I often do find, though, with American stand-up that they part of that being high status and not talking so much to the crowd and not sort of seeking so much approval. I think British comedians do that a lot more. You can watch an American comedian and sometimes feel like, oh, I didn't really get any of you in that, but not feel yeah. disappointed in the way that you would if it was a British comic, I think. An American TV stand-up comes over and does their special and you go, that just finished. You yeah. sit in the pub afterwards and you have that feeling of, I, is he still going on in there? I didn't, <laughs> yeah. There was no sense of an art. There's no sense of setting me out with, with anything to think about. Yeah. There's, there's no signifiers at the end of these routines that they are about to stop. No. I mean, I think there's a bit more now. I think that we have actually exported it a bit. Um, have you seen John Mulaney's Kid Gorgeous, his Netflix special? No, I have not yet. That's um, that's a, an absolutely glorious hour. But I do he, love John Mulaney. He's, he's wonderful. But the bit, the bit that got clipped and went viral is pretty much the climax of the show. It's the Trump being a horse in a hospital, that yeah. routine. <laughs> and he's, he's obviously given some thought to the structure of the thing there so that you go, well, I've got a massive chunk at the end here which I know is going to blow people's minds. So I put that somewhere at the climactic point of it so that there is a, a feel of some shape to the show. Yes. And where do you go after that moment? Yeah. Or do, I suppose, as well as structuring something? This guy being the president... It's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. It's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. I think eventually everything's gonna be okay, but I have no idea what's gonna happen next. And neither do any of you, and neither do your parents, because there's a horse loose in the hospital. It's never happened before. No one knows what the horse is gonna do next, least of all the horse. He's never been in a hospital before. He's as confused as you are. I went to see Mike Babiglia on Broadway doing his show, which was about him having a kid and stuff. And that had definitely, it was an Edinburgh structure and it was a emotional punch was what he chose to, hmm. to kind of close with. That seems to be sort of increasingly what's being demanded but as you said earlier on, it's probably impossible with every show. So what you're after is the same feeling of confidence that you feel about a stand-up when they come on stage, yeah. which is that they've got this and they know what they're doing. Yeah. You should also feel that when they go off stage, you know, they definitely had it. Yeah, because there's nothing worse than the show that dies in the last five minutes and then that's what everyone <laughs> mm. remembers and you're sort of standing in the courtyard at the Pleasants hearing people go, well, that just sort of tailed off. <laughs> I don't know what she was sort of trying to say. But yeah, I think a climactic routine is always... That, like the way to go. Like if I were re-editing that um, Ellen sketch, I would probably have put taste this kind of at the end. So you're ending with your hit. Do the I single. Say, I would say that. Head, to, head towards <laughs> the big number. But I mean, what, what George Martin used to say about when he was when he was banding the Beatles albums, in other words, doing the track listing. And someone asked him once, how did you do it? And he said, well, the 
the first one is the one that nothing can come before and you end on the one that you can't follow. That's yeah. it. That's how you do it. I, I always think that there is... It's very difficult to manufacture, though, those sort of the, the show-stopping routines. I remember my agent saying to me, what you need to do in terms of club comedy is just make yourself unfollowable. And that's the oh, the secret is to success is make yourself unfollowable. And I never achieved that. Make yourself unfollowable? Yeah, because, you know... That's, that's quite a high bar, isn't it? <laughs> it's an unbelievably high bar, but then you do see it happen. What a challenge. But it does, and then you just sort of see it happen sometimes with people where you get, like, Michael, Michael McIntyre, I think, is, the for me, the classic example where he was eminently followable for years. <laughs> and then uh, I remember doing the Glee Club in Birmingham with him once, and I was comparing, and... He just suddenly, and it was like, has he made some pact with the devil or how has he achieved this? But it was just, I mean, he did three encores. Wow. And, you know, on a very normal club night where normally, you know, someone might get an encore. But, uh, and this was before he had, you know, really much TV profile at all. He'd done like a tiny bit. And it was like, okay, so that's what they mean is that there's no way the next night you're going to go actually should we put him on in the middle yeah uh, it's just never going to happen so yeah that's to do. and you need to feel like yeah your last routine of your show is the unfollowable routine i suppose the madness of that is that you wouldn't think of michael mcintyre as an unfollowable comic you say if they make yourself unfollowable you go oh you're jerry sadovitz you're something right off the edge you're yes. Stuart lee you're something extreme the odd thing and i suppose it also applies to ellen is likeable affable presentable yeah. and unfollowable yeah yeah you've yeah. just got the audience and she ends up being one of the top entertainers in america with this routine which is weird and spiky but very very accessible and very very pleasant i mean there's something or maybe it's something actually quite unpleasant about audiences which is that they are all sort of subconsciously judging you against something else and so if you're on a comedy bill and People just go, I just love you so much. I don't ever want you to go. You're like the best. Then there is that, like, they'll feel disloyal to anyone else who would come (laughs) after you or, you know, there's... (laughs) But we said we loved you. Ah. It's it's a love thing, isn't it? (laughs) Maybe that's that's what Ellen's playing with here. She comes on stage and she's immediately... You want her to be your friend or you want her to be your girlfriend or you want her to be your best mate at college. She's toying with those tropes and that allows her to do that sort of silly I'm actually a serial killer hints that you know aren't real because actually she's just your mate making a joke and you trust her and then after at the end of it you don't want her to go yeah maybe that's another thing that means that the ending doesn't quite pay off because you go but I wanted more of you yeah that's it I wanted you to sort of I wanted you to want me back and give me something kind of amazing at the end I don't know really but yeah I uh but there's something quite punk about going out on the uh piss on the toilet seat isn't there? it's surprising <laughs> yes. I, I imagine I, I haven't seen many of her other specials I imagine she wouldn't do that now maybe this is an early set of going well I'll, at least I'll be memorable yeah I will mime smearing piss <laughs> and then I'll leave them wanting less no, yeah. you still think I would I would be happy for her to come back and do more I was a real delight with this because of the length of the set is at the end of it I was disappointed where my little YouTube meter was. Yeah. I was disappointed it had reached the end. I would have taken Did you have it split 15... up into bits as yeah, well? Yeah, it comes with four chunks. And yeah. The last chunk is very, very short. Yeah. And I was deeply disappointed it had stopped. And the first thing I did was I went back and started watching it again. I went back and watched one again because I thought, actually, I want 15 minutes more of that. And it was lovely. Yeah. I'm, I'm that way because I almost became a professional tennis player. That's what I was going to be. But, um, well, I wasn't good enough, you know. But... <laughs> Well, I played once. You can't judge, really, but I was pretty good, you know. I was just, I was just hitting against a wall, you know, just, just not a wall, but I had a racket and a ball, and I was just bouncing it, just, just not a racket, but I had a ball, and I was just tossing, just a you know, baseball, but I was pretty good. You know? Something nice about seeing stand-ups early in their career as well, isn't there? I was thinking about um, my favourite Bill Hicks um, set is the one that's released on DVD as Sane Man, which is a very early one of him. I think he's in, in Austin, Texas, Texas yeah. somewhere mm-hmm. like that. It looks like it's been filmed on carpet or something. You know, <laughs> just the most appalling picture, and it's not great sound. But but he's because he's there and he's he, and he's young. Um, there's there's a real kind of vividness about about what he's doing, and yeah. I think I detected the same thing here. You know, you you know that this. 
Ellen is fucking alive, isn't she? Yeah. She really is in this. And hungry and yeah. all of those things. I mean, yeah, I feel privileged to have seen... So in the early days of Edinburgh, going to see Johnny Vegas in this tiny little room at the Gilded Balloon where he was throwing pots and going crazy and it was amazing. Count Arthur Strong. You know, yeah, when you see those extraordinary characters for the first time, it is amazing. I mean, I saw Peter Kay's first gigs... And that was just mad, just mad seeing something so immediately perfectly formed that people loved. And they, with him as well, I mean, he was unfollowable from the second he set foot on stage. Really? It was so irritating <laughs> <laughs> that everybody else was like, oh my God, because everyone would die except him. I can't <laughs> imagine seeing him in a small room because he's such a big performance, mm. isn't he? And he was so young and yet he was so old and it would be, and people were like right there. So in the frog and bucket and like there's, you know, you can see every detail of his face and you can see there are no lines on that face it's a chubby baby's <laughs> face and yet he's talking like a 50 year old man and everyone is buying that um you know and he's, he's creating this persona that you go well this can't be you really you know you're a young bloke you've just come out of Salford University where you did a comedy course and you're a nerd and you're a sort of <laughs> academic stand-up and you're um, and yet you are convincing everyone that you, you know, you probably were in the embassy club with Bernard Manning last night and <laughs> you have this life with a a wife who doesn't understand you. And it, it, it's, it, he was sort of trad and yet young and yet modern. And it was a, an extraordinary thing to see. Do you think that watching this Ellen routine, that this is someone who will be unfollowable? Or do you think the charm of this is watching someone heading towards that but not being there yet? Yeah, I think, actually, it was... Sometimes when you, as a young comic, watch comedy, you think, well, I mean, I'll just never, ever be able to do that. But there was something about it that felt almost achievable and I never did get there and I may yeah. do one day. But it did feel like, yeah, she's... Yeah, she, you know, she's establishing who she is and she's finding herself. But then I kind of look at her latest special and you go, well, she's out the other side now. She's yeah. sort of almost... Mm. She, she, there's everyone knows exactly who she is, and so I mean, and the the, the new special is very good because it's called Relatable. The new special starts off with a very long routine, again about a house. So it's about her house and about her walking through all the rooms of her house and uh, trying to find some relatable material. She's and, in the house she broke into in yes, the special. Yes, exactly. And <laughs> there is, and also there's a maid called Lupita. So there oh, is a really callback. lovely. She's doing career long yes. callbacks. I mean, she was it was the long game. This is it. It's worth waiting all. <laughs> Those years. Finally, she's learned how to structure a bloody show. Thank you. It was worth the wait. And it ends up with her pissing on the biggest toilet anyone's ever seen on stage. It's prop comedy, but my God, it's worth a dollar. Well, I'm glad you liked it, and I'm glad that I have looked at it again and liked it slightly less than I did when uh, I was... <laughs> now I'll be writing my Edinburgh show and you'll have ruined it for me now because I'll be watching this obsessively going... Uh, no, I'll be going, oh, my God, how can I do... I, I might do it, but was it not... Didn't Eddie Murphy almost do beat for beat a Richard Pryor <laughs> set? set? And I'm sure this is something that I've heard that there was a, uh, you know, it was exactly... I should look it up, oh, really, I think I've just talking that, yeah. to... But, you know, and it is... And that is the temptation because you do look at stuff like this and you go, God, that is so perfect. And what if I just did? So I'll do my slightly crazy bit at the beginning and then I'll do, and then I'll be, well, I won't be, a, I can't be a gerbil or a fish or a lizard. What animals are left? I'll be an octopus. Uh, You're about to get the save the cat story structure for a stand up set. Well, exactly. I think that's this, it, isn't and it? And then add in the end that's slightly neater. And I think you're done. And then do a big routine at the end about shitting. Well, has anyone done the, um, I mean, definitely it would have to be smearing your own feces wouldn't it, it yeah, that's yeah. where we go next but yeah has anyone done the sort of the uh, stand-up set and... I don't know maybe maybe there's there's something in this that, that, that it rises and falls with a I mean cer certainly there are enough podcasts analysing how stand-up works <laughs> no there. I know but and I'm sorry to have added to that total the hive mind can combine to work out how it's done but maybe, maybe there is a structure in here but maybe what's more important is that when you first saw this and it gave you hope of being able to do it and also a clue well, just to a, do yeah it. a sort of uh, a role model you don't need to yeah. copy it beat for beat to get the essence of it yes. and to say this is suddenly possible. Though, yes. I tell you what, tribute acts? 
Yeah, there are plenty of Queen tribute acts out there, yes. and you know the bootleg Beatles and things. Sure, isn't there barely Connolly? Barely Connolly? Is there barely Connolly? Or did there we make one. that one up? I'm I am not sure. <laughs> Justin and I have played this game. I hope there are some. So, uh, I mean, it's, it loosely feels... Porter, obviously, yeah. would be. Yes. We've already decided yeah. that would Ellen be mine. Computer generous. <laughs> <laughs> the simulated Ellen. Yes. <laughs> CGI Ellen, like the ABBA hologram. Yeah. This is it, and you can write it, and we've done that. Uh, thank you for bringing on this stupid idea, Lucy Porter. Thank Lucy. you.